Well, this morning, um, we have Craig Hill teaching, and about a, about a month ago, Craig offered as a ministry to me to take the Sunday after Christmas, which he also did last year, and that is a beautiful ministry to a pastor, um, not because I need today off, but because I need the three or four days leading up to today to prepare for today off. So I've been able to have a complete week off. Uh, Thanks to uh, Craig. I'm so grateful. So we, we set that up about a, a month ago. And then, as you know, about three weeks ago, uh, Sunday morning, I got real sick. And uh, so Craig got a 6.30 a.m. call saying, could you come in last minute? And he came and preached uh, two services then. And uh, the, the next day, I sent him sort of this sheepish email and said, J- just making sure that that doesn't mean you're not going to preach <laughs> now as well. Are we still good for that? And he said, I'm still good for that. So I am very grateful for you, Craig, particularly this December and in the new year. So uh, Craig's going to come and, and lead us in, in God's word. So let's welcome Craig. Thanks, Dave. Uh, it's always a great joy uh, to serve pastors, and it seems as though God has um, moved in my own life as that is part of my vocation to serve pastors, and so it's been a joy to serve in that way here. If you have your Bibles, let's open it up to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 is where we're going to be. And it is wonderful to be with everybody here on New Year's. You know, you never know who's going to be here, you know, <laughs> you know how it went last night. In our family, it was New York New Year's. Uh, that's what we celebrated. So nine o'clock was, uh, and I know the Rio de Janeiro New Year. I, that's a new idea. We're going to do that one next year. So um, as you find Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44, if you would, in honor of God and God's word, if you would stand. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought it. This is God's word. You may have a seat. You know, this morning I want to spend a little bit of time, we think about Jesus, and there's a lot of things we can say about Jesus. I mean, it's funny, in our family, you ask a spiritual question, and the the first answer out of someone's mouth is, well, it's Jesus. And there's a lot of things you can say about, I had this kid, I I was a junior high director for about a decade, and um, I had this one boy, his name was Josh Cabezas, and um, Josh, every time I asked him a question uh, in Sunday school, he'd always say, Jesus, God, the Bible. And um, it would just come out like a reflex. And you think, like, he's like, that's what's gotten me this far. I think, I think I'm going to just keep going with that. Even though I was asking, you know, okay, never mind. Um, and so we could say a lot about Jesus, but if we could simplify some things about Jesus, we might ask the question, what was Jesus, what was his central proclamation? When Jesus showed up on earth, what was the first thing out of his mouth in terms of his ministry, in terms of what he was trying to say. And we see it's interesting. In Matthew 4, 17, John the Baptist shows up, and what comes out of John the Baptist's mouth is, repent for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. Jesus is baptized. The Spirit comes upon him. There seems to be some sense of, 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 the, of the, the surety of his calling. And he steps out, and the first thing out of his mouth 
is repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Matthew records that after Jesus says this, and he begins to do these these various miracles, he says that he was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing disease and sickness among the people. And so one of the questions that I want to ask, the, the question I want to ask today is, what is this message? What is the idea that the kingdom of God is at hand? And why is it good news? And why is it the first thing out of Jesus' mouth? Why is this running theme, what is the kingdom of God? What is the good news of the kingdom? And so, and this being the central message of Jesus, I just want to say a couple things and reflect a little bit about uh, what we're going to look at is two of what we call the kingdom parables of Matthew chapter 13 and ask the question, what is the kingdom of God. A little bit of clarification as we get going this morning. It says here that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure or the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for pearls. And there's a little bit of of translation and a little bit of explanation that must be said when we talk about kingdom. First of all, it says kingdom of heaven. And what this is implying in Luke, it says kingdom of God. And if you're Jewish, um, there's this tendency among Jewish writers not to say the name of God. And so you would circumlocute around that. You would talk around the idea. And you might, instead of saying the kingdom of God, you would say the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of his name or the kingdom of the Lord or something like that. So kingdom of heaven is kingdom of God. But to be honest, we don't live in a world where we encounter the idea of a kingdom. So like if I mentioned to you a king or a kingdom, we're in a very different geopolitical environment today. We were reminded of that this last year, right? As we had, we didn't have a king election, we had a presidential election. We, didn't, we had representatives that were elected, and, and you don't necessarily have kingdoms, you have, you have nations, you have governments, but some of the things as we think about this idea when Jesus is saying the kingdom of God, we have to understand that a kingdom is not necessarily borders on a map. As a matter of fact, it, I mean, we love, we love, I love maps. Maybe you don't love maps. I love maps. And I love going, you go on Google Maps and you look at, you look at a nation and there's very clear defined borders. And we can look at that with satellite images. But in the ancient world, there were not these clear defined borders all the time. It wasn't like the, the geography today or necessarily the lines on a map Uh, a a parallel or something like that. And there also weren't necessarily established, or we should say this, that the tenure of a king or the tenure of a ruler or the tenure of a governor was not necessarily very long-lived. What was long-lived, and this is an interesting thing about when we hear about Jesus talking about kings and kingdoms, that we might think more today of the nation or the government of God. And also to that, maybe the the culture of God is at hand. Governments in the ancient world and leaders were in flux, but what was not in flux, and this might be something that Jesus is playing on here as we think about this, what wasn't in flux, and even today is not in flux, is there's always a place for you and someone happy to receive your taxes. In the ancient world, there was always a place to pay your taxes, and they were, it was typically done by someone showing up accompanied by people with swords. And oftentimes, taxes were oftentimes collected more as extortion than anything else. And you're like, well, what has changed today? But 
But today, we, we have maybe a little bit of a different way of, of paying our taxes. But the idea is that when taxes are paid in the ancient world as well as today, they would be received by a government that was ruled by a king. And then that king would take that revenue and exercise his power and the amount of time that that leader had and go about certain projects, certain building projects, certain, and, and those projects that that king would undertake with that, with that money, with that time, with that power, would, would re- reflect the sort of sensibilities, the sort of benevolence that that king might have. And so whatever was received by that king, he would put to use in his kingdom and it would show the sort of sensibilities that ruled the day in that kingdom. And when we think about, so maybe an aqueduct would be built. It would benefit the people. It would benefit, it would build infrastructure. Maybe there would be roads that would be built. And it would, be, it would show that there was a value on travel or there was a value on commerce. Maybe a theater might be built. And it would show that this king, this kingdom values, the sensibilities of this kingdom values the arts. Or maybe you might have uh, uh, maybe you might have other projects that, that are built. Uh, maybe you might have um, a temple that is built to some god or to the one true god or something like that. And it would show the sort of sensibilities of the reign of this king. And so when Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand, what we need to understand is that a kingdom is a place where someone's effective will is done. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, thy kingdom come, what? Thy will be done. That a kingdom is somewhere where someone's effective will is done. And, we ask, and there's plenty of kings and kingdoms and rulers on this earth. And one of the big issues this last year was whose effective will would be done? What sort of sensibilities would rule the day as you are a citizen of this nation or this kingdom? What sort, of, what sort of tendencies might be valued? What sort of investments ought we make as a society? What sort of benevolence ought we give or receive? And when we think about this idea that a kingdom is a place where someone's effective will is done, it goes beyond borders, it goes beyond leaders, It's where certain attitudes, priorities, and behaviors rule the day. Where certain situations call for action. Where there's a time, when is the time to use a sword? And when is the time to use a plow? When is the time to spend? And when is the time to save? And the king or the kingdom would produce the sensibilities among the people to behave in such a characteristic way. When do we use a hammer? When do we rest? There's a certain characteristic way of governing and a certain characteristic way of living is produced in a kingdom. And so the question then, if Jesus is saying the kingdom of God, or maybe a better way to put it, is the reign of God is at hand. The governance of God is at hand. 
the certain characteristic ways that God wants to interact with people and the certain characteristic way of follower that he wants to produce, of citizen that he wants to produce is at hand. The question is, what are the sensibilities of God? What sort of an environment, if God had his way, would be produced? Because Jesus seems to think that that could be right here, at hand, near, among his people. That as a citizen of God's kingdom, it might produce a characteristic way of living. Now, then as well as now, kingdoms, reigns, governances, political parties, okay, can exist side by side and even overlap. Um, There were always those in the ancient world who might have bucked the system. Even living in a certain kingdom, they might choose to live a different way within that kingdom. And you might actually have competitive sensibilities within a kingdom. Um, On a cultural level, we see this all the time. On Friday night, um, my wife and I um, were invited. Actually, my wife was more, more was invited um, we, to a, well, she, she's the friendly one. Um, we, <laughs> we were invited to a, uh, to a Muslim wedding. And um, we were invited. Um, Kelly works at a school in Irvine, and she struck up a friendship with um, a Muslim girl who was engaged. And um, it all started. Um, the girl wore a, uh, um, a head covering, and she asked, well, um, why do you wear the head covering? And she, she had worked there for two years, and nobody had asked why she wore the head covering. And it began a conversation, and um, it began a conversation about religion, and they started talking about Jesus, and they started talking about all sorts of stuff. And the next thing you know, we're sitting at this Muslim wedding. And what was interesting is we thought it was, this, it was going to be, here were these, these Western Christians, and we're going to be transported into this other world where there's other sensibilities. There's other ways of looking at things. There's certain, there's certain characteristic ways of celebrating. There's certain character, characteristic ways of dressing. And we thought we were going to be transported in there, and we were. And it was, it was, it was a feast for the senses. And we were in a different kingdom, so to speak, a different culture, a different way of thinking. But it was, it was funny because we were sitting next to um, Abdul and Fatima, an older couple from Pakistan. And they, um, they had moved in 1985 to Irvine, and we heard their story and how 42 years ago they were married in Pakistan and they came over here. Um, but what we weren't prepared for, which was interesting, is um, the bride was from Palestinian descent and the groom was from Pakistani descent. And so one of the major conversations that we were engaged in is how this wedding was a clash of cultures. I mean, here we are, we're like, yeah, it's a, no, but they're like, no, not you being here. These two cultures, the Pakistanis and the Palestinians, and they started talking about how the different sensibilities of, of having a wedding, of having family gather, and maybe your wedding was a cl- kind of a clash of kingdoms too. I don't know, maybe it still is. I don't want to bring that up. Uh, but there, there are certain characteristic ways, and it's very important as we understand this when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, is not to necessarily just think about geopolitical realities or about kings and reigning, but about what sort of culture does that produce? Especially when we think about this idea that that a kingdom is essentially a place where your effective will is done. And everybody in here 
to one degree or another, has a kingdom. You have a place somewhere in your life, it might be large, it might be small, but a sphere of some sort in which your will is done. And it's within that sphere that there are certain attitudes, priorities, and behaviors that you value that win the day. We happened to be at a wedding where it wasn't necessarily our value sensibilities that won the day, but we were part of that. And you might live your life living in the midst of other kingdoms. We certainly, as believers, live in the midst of a larger culture in which we might say, our will, my will is not being done here. But nonetheless, we have places and spaces in our own lives where our effective wills are done. For some of you, you might own a company. And you set the direction, you set the tone, you set a certain style of doing business, you set the working culture, your will is done there. It is your kingdom. For some of you, you might be teachers. You have a classroom. And there's a certain tone, a certain style that your students expect when they walk into that class. If you're a student, you know if you have, if you have six different periods in the day and you go in, every, every period you're going into a different kingdom. And there are certain rules, there are certain ideas, there are certain sensibilities, there are certain obligations that take place in those kingdoms. Perhaps your kingdom is your home. You set a tone. You set priorities. You arrange the furniture in such a way. You use space in such a way that it promotes certain behaviors. Maybe, your, maybe all of your couches, like ours, they all face the TV, right? It promotes certain behaviors. Maybe you have certain spaces in your houses where there is no TV and they just face each other and it promotes conversation. But one way or another, you have a kingdom where your will is done And when your will is done, it promotes certain sensibilities. It promotes certain behaviors. Maybe it's just your garage, (laughs) okay? Uh, Now I'm speaking to some people. Or maybe maybe it's your room. Maybe you don't have a lot of say anywhere else, but you have some say in your room. It is the place where your effective will is done. Perhaps it is only in your head where your effective will is done. But make no mistake, Jesus makes a point that that is not to be an underestimated place where your will is done. In your head, that your thoughts, that there's power in your thoughts, that when your will is done in your thoughts, it produces characteristic ways of thinking, of behaving. In any event, a kingdom is a place where certain attitudes, priorities, behaviors, rule the day where certain situations call for action. If you were to reign, what attitudes, priorities, and behaviors would rule the day? And it begs the question, what is God's reign like? What attitudes, sensibilities, behaviors, does God, as he rules want to see developed within his people. What is God's reign like? Jesus proclaims that God's reign is at hand. God, and you might not think about this, God has attitudes. God has opinions. 
There are certain times in a meeting, sometimes I'll, we'll be in a meeting and, um, and we'll stop. We don't know which direction to go and we'll just pray, God, you have an opinion about this. Would you help us to understand what your opinion is on this matter? You have a, you have a sensibility on this matter. You, you, t- you might think something about this. Help us to understand what that is. What is God's reign like? What style of living does it produce? And what we see in Matthew 13 is Jesus, to answer this question, he says earlier, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand, the reign of God is here, but what is that like? In order to explain that, he tells a string of parables in chapter 13 of Matthew. And that string of parables, it begins with the parable of the soils, the sower is casting seed and it lands on various soils. He tells uh, the story of the wheat and the weeds. An enemy plants weeds in the field of wheat. And what, what are the sensibilities of, of the farmer, of the master? This parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven in the loaves, the parable of the dragnet in the lake collecting fish. And the two that we, I want to look at this morning as we think about what do these say about the kingdom of God, the reign of God, are the pearl of great price, or the pearl of uncommon value, and the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. So what is God's reign like? Now, we're not going to say everything about what God's reign is like. We're just going to say a couple things about what God's reign is like. We could spend our whole lifetime asking the question, what is the reign of God like? What are the sensibilities of God? But we're just going to look at a couple. Uh, the parable of the hidden treasure. Let's look at this. Matthew thirteen forty four. if you still have your Bibles open. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Hidden treasure. (laughs) Um, It's not unusual in the ancient world, as you think about this in the first century, the Jewish and Greco-Roman worlds of the first century, it's not unusual to talk about a treasure that has been hidden underground. There were no banks, there were no safe deposit box. If you had something of value you would find a place to hide it, especially if you lived in a land like Israel in which every couple generations you might have a foreign army that marched through the land. And as a matter of fact, we found examples of where this kind of hidden treasure might be in Israel, like the Dead Sea Scrolls were an example of that. And when when these were hidden, they were pots that were about this big, but they took these pots and they buried them. They dug a hole in the ground and they buried them so the whole pot was below ground, only the lid was above. And so then you could put whatever you wanted into that jar that was underground, essentially, put the lid on it, and maybe put a few rocks around it, and you would hide it. And so this idea of a hidden treasure in a field is not a foreign idea in the ancient world. And especially if you had these armies that were marching through, if someone, look, if you have a hidden treasure, you hide it, you don't tell a lot of people. But if there's a foreign army that's coming through, and they're working their way through, and the person who hid the treasure dies... No one knows it's there. That's why 2,000 years later they dug up the Dead Sea Scrolls because everyone who knew where they were was killed by the Romans, essentially. It's a horrible idea, but that's the idea that Jesus is talking about here. Someone has hidden a treasure in a field and another person has stumbled onto it. The man may or may not who stumbled onto it may or may not have been maybe a laborer or someone who, who simply is looking for a shortcut through a field, but he, he happens upon this cache. 
Maybe he was plowing, he ran, ran into it. It doesn't say, he just found a hidden treasure. And what he does is interesting, and we're going to talk about that, but he, he doesn't grab whatever's in it, he rehides it. And then his priorities change. His priorities drastically change. He liquidates everything he has so that he can purchase the field because he knows the treasure is in it to buy the field. So he buys the field. So that, we'll talk about that in a second, but that's, that's the first of the parables that he says. That for Jesus, that's what the sensibilities of the kingdom of God, the reign of God produce. That sort of behavior. The second parable has a lot of similar elements in it. Matthew 13, 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. Pearls, you might not have known this, but pearls um, were the most highly valued gem in the ancient world. Um, even more valuable than gold, even more valuable than diamonds. And it's probably because both of those things are more accessible than pearls in the ancient world. And you might say, what? But um, here's the idea. You could dig up diamonds, you could dig up gold, but in order to get a pearl, you got to hold your breath. And you, you don't have, it's not like Jacques Cousteau and Philippe are exiting the Calypso and they dive down. No, they're down there and they, look, it took, you didn't have pearl farming, you don't have scuba gear. So pearls, pearls were highly, highly valued in the ancient world. They were in the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, the Indian Ocean, and they were used for adornment, particularly for necklaces, kind of like today. Single pearls had a reputation for fetching very high prices. So Julius Caesar is said to have presented the mother of Brutus with a pearl worth more than six million sesterces, which was a Roman unit of currency, which works out to be $100,000. One pearl, $100,000. Cleopatra was said to have owned a pearl worth 100 million sesterces. That's $1.5 million dollars. Pearls were the bling of the ancient world, okay? And so you have a pearl merchant, and pearls became, uh, came to become a, a figure of speech for something of supreme worth. If you had a favorite child, no, nobody, nobody does, We're all, we love our children the same, but in the ancient world, they had favorites, right? But they called their favorite children pearls. Um, in, in Hebrew thought, a, a, a wise saying became known as a pearl, a pearl of wisdom is what it would be. Um, the word for pearl in Greek is margarites. The true meaning, remember this later today, everybody, the true meaning of margarita, okay? Pearl, that's a pearl, all right? Not a lot of laughs. There's no second service where I can cut that out of, okay? <laughs> but what we have here is we have a merchant who is seeking... Fine pearls, a traveling merchant. And this would have been someone of some net worth because this merchant would have found pearls and then sold them to the wealthy. So someone who had a, a pretty good amount of net worth. The idea of him coming on a pearl of great value is that the merchant found a pearl from one of his sources with no flaws of considerable size and uncommon quality. And what does he do? 
He sells everything else just to have that one. So what is it about these parables that tell us what are the sensibilities of God's reign? What sort of behaviors does God see his governments ideally producing in his people? And there are some similarities in these parables, and there are some things that, that, that lean on the common sensibilities of the day, but there are other things that cut against the common sensibilities of the day. Let's look at what they are. First of all, so if you're, if you're taking any notes, but this is where it might come in, you know, I don't know, maybe some, just saying. Um, the first thing in both of these parables that is true about the kingdom of God that I think Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God is one thing about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God values discovery. It values, the, and, and also at the same time, the kingdom of God and these sensibilities, these common sensibilities of God are oftentimes hidden to us. They are counterintuitive to the way we might think, and thus they are hidden. And it takes oftentimes, anytime something is discovered, there's always a note of grace that comes with discovery. You're out, look, you're out shopping and you happen upon a bargain. I know nobody in here really values that sort of a thing. You happen upon it, but there's a sense of grace that I found something that no one else has found. I have found something, and it wasn't because necessarily I was diligently looking for it. Like the parable, like the treasure in the field, this person stumbles upon it. And so there's this interesting note in the kingdom of God, the reign of God, that God seems to like to work through this unseen hidden hand that produces discovery. It's the idea of grace. That God moves us to discover something we would not have discovered on our own. And that God takes us to these places, to these thoughts, where as we arrive, we realize, I can't believe I had never thought of this before. I can't believe I had never been here before. But this is good. And there's a note of discovery. There's a note of grace in both of these things. God's reign is oftentimes hidden. And it must be discovered. And that these values are oftentimes counterintuitive, but God will graciously reveal the value of this hidden and underestimated wisdom, like the first will be last and the last will be first. As we looked at this last uh, Christmas season, we were looking at Mary, and Mary sings this song that God will exalt the humble, but he will send away the proud. It's not like our culture where the proud and the wealthy and the powerful that God welcomes. No, God sends them away. And he wel it's this counterintuitive thought. The other thing that's counterintuitive in here, in God's kingdom, God values discovery. God values grace. God leads people to these discoveries. But the other thing that happens in these parables is that both of these people, the man who finds the treasure in the field and the pearl or the merchant looking for pearls, um, they sell everything. As a matter of fact, in Greek, there's, it, it literally says, he sold everything as much as he had and bought it. I always wondered when I read this parable why the man who found the treasure didn't just take it. Why did he not just reach into the jar, grab the stuff, fill his pockets, and Get out of there. 
Why, why does he not just take the treasure? Why does he sell everything? It's, look, why can't I keep everything and the treasure too? Why not? And this is where Jesus is likely showing some kind of counterintuitive notion about the kingdom of God. That the man, the point of the parable is that the man makes a formal commitment to the treasure. It's not just about doing the most efficient thing. He says, I'm going, I, I, I found this treasure, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to rehide it, and then I'm going to go and I'm going to figure out if anybody owns this field, and I'm going to purchase the field so that I can make a formal claim to the treasure. Otherwise, I'm just a thief. Otherwise, I'm just a person who's taking something that's not his. I want this to be mine, and I'm going to do whatever it takes for this to be mine. I'm going to formalize I'm going to sell everything because I see the value of this treasure. And there's something about the kingdom where God says, look, there's discovery and there's grace, but there's a point when you realize the value of what you have. What God has given, that you would be more than happy to take everything as much as you have and give it up to possess, formally possess this treasure this pearl. It's not simply casual. If I find it, I'll take it. No, I find it. I want to make sure that it formally belongs to me. I want it and I want to make it clear to everyone around that this belongs to me. It's interesting because even the merchant, at the same time, he finds one pearl. My thought, and I'm not a, I'm a big businessman, but look, I know enough about business. Look, buy low, sell high, Right? I find a pearl, my job is to find out, well, what's the cost? Can I drive them down on the cost? You know, can we make a deal? What do we do? And they, look, they knew that in the ancient world. They weren't dumb. They knew that that's the way it works. You find a pearl, you figure out how to buy it at the lowest possible price because, and get the most value out of it. But this merchant pearl, or this pearl merchant, is a bad pearl merchant. He simply wants, he sees the pearl and he's like, look, it doesn't matter what the cost is. You know what the cost is? I'll, I'll set the cost. Everything I own. I don't care what you're asking for. I'm just going to give you everything I own. And I want that to be enough. Everything. And it's, it's counterintuitive. It was counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive now. It was counterintuitive then. But Jesus says, that's the way the kingdom of God works. When you find it, when God reveals it to you, when you discover it, you want, you don't ask, what is it going to cost me? What's, the, what's my lowest price? It's not buy low, sell high. It's buy high and hold. Buy high, as high as you possibly can, and hold. It's counterintuitively. I want to grossly overpay for this field. I want to grossly overpay for this pearl. But the point is that whatever the treasure is, the cost is everything as much as you own. What is the kingdom of God like? What are the sensibilities that win the day? When people discover God's kingdom, they give everything as much as they have. They don't try to haggle to obtain it. They simply do everything in their power to procure it for themselves. And why? 
There's one note in both of these parables um, why they do what they do. The first parable says it outright. Um, if you look in um, 1345, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field when a man found and cover, which a, fan, a man found and covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. There's a little phrase, from his joy. What does he do? He goes and sells everything he owns, and from his joy, he purchases the field. From his joy, he goes and sells as much as he has. Where does the action come from in the kingdom of God, under the reign of God, under the sensibilities of God? Why do we do what we do? In God's kingdom, why do his citizens act? They act from the joy. They act because what they found has welled up something deep within them that they did not know was there, and they gladly, gladly do whatever it takes because God's reign is so loving, is so benevolent. His reign is so just that they gladly serve a king with everything that they have. They give of whatever they have to whatever extent, the full measure of devotion that they have, they give. It is done from the joy. You might have experienced this. Things that people do from the joy oftentimes look kind of stupid to other people. Have you ever done this before? You're pumped up about something, okay? You're excited. This, I mean, look, when I first became a Christian, there's a lot of joy. And some, if you think back on some of the things you did when you first became a Christian, some of the energy that you had, because it was out of this joy, and there was this wonderful sense, I'm gonna do whatever God is asking. And maybe you look back on it and you think, that was kind of naive, that was kind of foolish. Look, forget that. Those are the sensibilities of the kingdom, why would we value those dulling over our years? That God's kingdom is a kingdom that is done for the joy. Why, why do Chris and Lizzie McCall move to another country? From the joy, from the joy. Why do people give more than they ought to because of the joy? And when you experience that, you're experiencing the reign of God. The reign of God is at hand. When you are worshiping and loving Jesus so much that you're like, look, we have to do this. Why? I don't know. It's from the joy. And sometimes that sounds hard to explain to somebody else. And it sounds kind of goofy coming out of your mouth. But it's the sort of risk that one takes on the strength of internal conviction that whatever may come, it was well worth it. I remember work, working on stuff with my dad in the garage, and we'd come up with a solution to a problem, and he says, well, if it doesn't work, we would have always thought it should have. <laughs> right? Those are the sensibilities of the kingdom. I'm given everything. What if it doesn't work? Well, I always thought it should have, because God's good. There's an interesting verse, interesting verse in Hebrews 12, 2. Hebrews 12, 1, um, so we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. 
He endured the cross. He scorned its shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. Joy, joy is this very interesting motivator in the kingdom. Under God's reign, God seems to value things that are done out of the joy, from the joy. When I first heard the gospel, I was 14 years old. I was Roman Catholic. I was going through confirmation classes at the time, but I heard the gospel at another church. Um, I'm not anti-Roman Catholic. I think there's a lot of great evangelical Roman Catholics out there, but the confirmation classes that I was going through at the time were not necessarily evangelical. Um, and, um, and I was doing them per- totally out of obligation. It was not out of the joy. Um, and, um, and most people in them, I would argue, were doing the same thing. Um, but I went to this, I heard the gospel, I went to this youth group event, and I, look, God, God grabbed my heart. I mean, there's no other way. It was a discovery. It was gracious. It was something I had never experienced before. I was hearing God's word. I was hearing about Jesus. I was hearing about forgiveness of sins. I was hearing about a new way of life. I was hearing about new life. I remember I went to this youth group event, and I was so pumped. I was so excited. 14-year-old kid, so excited, so joyful. And I went back to my, my confirmation class, and I was trying to explain to them what I had found. <sighs> and you guys are laughing because you know that trying to explain a youth group event to a people sometimes sounds kind of goofy. So I, was trying, I said, well, we showed up, and we played this, this game, and we played this game. It was like human foosball. You sit back to back, and you hit this balloon around. And I was trying to explain this around, and you're like, this sounds goofy anyway, right? And yeah, you think it sounds goofy. They sound it. Look, a number of other 14-year-olds of that day thought it was goofy too. And I tried to, so we played this game, and then we sang some songs, and then they read the Bible, and this guy got up, he started teaching about Jesus. And I'm looking around like, and all it was was blank looks. And, and somebody said something that was particularly demeaning. And I remember, look, there have been times in my life, and I'm not going to lie, we live in a hard culture. There have been, especially this last year, there have been times in my life where I've, I've been intimidated to share my faith. There have been times in my life. And I'm not going to you know, try to get around that. But that was not one of them. I remember thinking in my head, it was, I wasn't spiteful, but I was, I, in my head I was like, I could give a rip what any of you think. Because I, I'm going back and I'm going to dig up whatever is there that belongs to me. I was, like the man, I was like the man who found the treasure in the field. And I was going back to formally procure whatever it was that belonged to me. Why? Because there was such a deep, rich joy. What else could I do? And I think as we start, as we start this year, as we start 2017, can we just think a little bit about, maybe even just think back to that, those moments, those early moments of your Christian life. And maybe someone's here and, and you're thinking, I, I don't know if I've ever experienced that. Look, Jesus died for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus sees you. Jesus wants to forgive your sins. Come to Jesus. Experience that joy. But to think back maybe on the time and the sort of joy and to think, God, where is, do you have joy for me in 2017? Do you have this joy? I would like a full measure of your joy. Please. So that I might move out from the joy. 
Because God, you seem to value that in your kingdom. I have to imagine that you're so willing to provide it. Would you help me to develop the sort of habits to bring this joy out? To operate out of this joy? To do things that might, and look, God, I'm willing to admit this is, it's going to probably make me do what, some things that look kind of dumb. But you know what? I'm not going to care. Because I want what you've got far more than what anything else, what anyone else has or what I have. And so would our prayer this year simply be, God, would you give me joy that moves me? Would you give me joy that moves me? You seem to want it and value it so much in your kingdom. For me, after that time with, in my confirmation class, it changed, it changed the way I thought about school, changed the way I thought about music. I started learning to play the guitar. I started studying. Um, my grades went up. I, there were so many, I got curious about everything, curious about everything. I started reading the Bible. It changed, and why? Because of this joy that God had provided. And certainly to ask you these same questions. What, not just what is God calling you to, but again, what is God moving you towards out of the joy that he is providing. Let's pray. Father, we pray, we ask you, and we come to you this year. First thing, this is a great way to start the year, to simply say, Father, we love you. And to say also, we want your joy. We want the joy that was before your son when he was willing to give his full measure of devotion because of the joy that was set before him. The kind of joy that the man who finds the, the treasure in the field had. The kind of joy that would allow him to sell everything to purchase the field. The kind of joy for the merchant who allowed him to sell, that allowed him to sell everything that he had so that he could have that pearl your kingdom, Father, is the pearl. We pray that it would deeply abide in our lives. We pray that you would well up joy within us, that it would move us into action, that it would change the course of our days, that we would do things at the end of the day that we didn't think were good ideas at the beginning of the day because of your joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.